just very briefly, so the main um, theories of crisis uh, crisis theory are underconsumption, which is just very put very simply that the working class isn't being paid enough to be able to afford to buy the commodities that capitalists sell. So reformism is the answer, increased wages, increased taxes, problem solved. The other one is the disproportionality theory, which um, basically argues that if capitalism and production and distribution isn't regulated properly by the state, that you will get uh, the, the a disbalance in supply and demand um, within and throughout, between and within branches of industry um, across the, the economy. Um, again, it's more complicated than that, but just very briefly. So Grossman is arguing against this. This is this is what he's taking on, and uh, essentially, this these two arguments are saying that capitalism can accumulate harmoniously, or capital can accumulate harmoniously and indefinitely, so long as it's properly regulated by the state. Um, so it's arguing for social democracy. Um, he's he's saying that's not the case. Capitalism has a tendency to break down of its own accord and goes into crisis uh, regularly. So, so Marx talks about um, the average recession striking sort of every 10 years. And um, so Grossman is arguing that in capital, Marx demonstrates this breakdown tendency. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of the Diet Soap podcast. We are launching um, Ted Reese's new book, um, the End of Capitalism, The Thought of Henrik Grossman. This book is obviously very close to my heart because I solicited it back when we were the evil people who had stolen control of Zero Books. <laughs> um, and I'm really proud to see that it's come out. And uh, it's a really uh, enjoyable read. It launches into a really... Um, no holds barred argument right from the start. Um, so I'm really pleased to have Ted Reese here. And if anyone is watching, this is my very first time doing a Twitch uh, stream. So I'm sure that I've got this just totally wrong. <laughs> um, but if you are, if you want to ask questions of Ted, I highly, uh, highly recommend that you do. Ted's really uh, interested and open to uh, to answering any questions. I also have with me the Swoletariat, who you may know from Twitter as I know everyone is on Twitter and follows all of us, um, uh, who um, has been following Ted's work for some time and will be helping me ask some questions and, and join into some discussion as well. So um, um, Stephen is your real name, apparently. <laughs> um, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got um, to know Ted and his work and the work of Henrik Grossman? Sure, yeah, thanks, Ashley. Um, 
I uh, so I have a YouTube channel called the Swoletariat, where I because uh, where I combine kind of lifting and uh, and socialism and Marxism. And uh, the reason I uh, came across Ted uh, Ted's work in the first place was because of your first conversation back at the very beginning of the pandemic in uh, I don't know it was February March or something of 2020. And uh, I just found the interview super fascinating, uh, and w what Ted had to say was kind of blowing my mind at the time. So I reached out to him and uh, asked him to be on my channel because I had lots of questions. Um, um, so he suggested I read his book so that I could ask him better questions, more informed questions. So I did that. His book at the time was uh, uh, Socialism or, or Extinction, about uh, automation and uh, global warming and the end of capitalism. And so that, that's where I got familiarized uh, with Grossman's work and uh, with Ted's interpretation of it uh, as it applies today. And um, yeah, so we had an interview. It went, it went great. Uh, we've been keeping in touch ever since, and I've been following Ted's work ever since. And um, so, you know, uh, the reason I'm here today is because I think, you know, Grossman's work is important, and Ted's, uh, Ted's work on Grossman is important. So, um, so first and foremost, you know, I think the reason it's this book is important is because nobody knows Grossman or his work today. Um, Rick Rick Kuhn and Ted Reese are basically the vanguard of Grossman's revival, as as far as I can tell. Uh, Marxists love to talk about ideas in terms of their historical context, and it seems like perhaps Grossman's theory of breakdown is a uh, is kind of a must-have expansion pack of Marxism uh, and, and Marxist economics, especially whose time has come. Um, so. Marx has spent a lot of time analyzing the current state of global global capitalist society, how it got there and where it's likely heading, and what are the overt and underlying forces at play. Uh, Marxism is not a hard science, but it takes a scientific approach to this analysis and these questions. So given that, um, having the correct economic theory is of the utmost importance, I think, especially today, where it might be argued that we are living in the end times of, of capitalism, as Grossman's Grossman's work uh, might suggest. Most, Mar most Marxists today readily acknowledge the depth and unique difficulty of today's crisis, and they even a lot of them even predicted it. But they would, most of them would balk at the idea that there can be a final breakdown uh, or final crisis of capitalism, as uh, Grossman's work kind of uh, points to. And so, pointing out uh, that profitability rose substantially in the 80s and 90s. And, uh, and substantially, substantially again during the pandemic and supply uh, and supply chain inflation crisis is something that kind of most Marxists today will, will point to as evidence that capitalism can reinvent itself and just keep kind of uh, keep on trucking uh, in, infinitely. Um, now, Derek Varn, uh, a uh, mutual uh, uh, friend or acquaintance of uh, Ted and I, he's been on uh, Ted's been on both of our channels. Uh, you know, recently he he's been musing. You know, asking you know where profits today are actually coming from, and you know what makes up America's GDP these days. Well, his conclusion is that it's mostly rents, subscriptions, uh, subscription services, uh, fictitious capital floating around, and gambling in the casino of uh, the stock markets. So increasingly, less and less from commodity production itself, where value comes from. So superficially, it looks like capitalism is still chugging along just fine and will recover after potentially bigger and long uh, deep recession by sweeping away the rot like uh, like it always does um, and it can do this forever we are told uh, provided the forces of marxism are sufficiently weak to you know bring about their own revolution um, but you know this is
this is what Ted's work uh, is, is, is uh, challenging. So personally, I find Grossman's theory both fascinating and intuitive, and I'm sure Ted will get into what exactly that is in, in more detail. Uh, but I'm not an economist, and I've only read Capital Volume 1 you know, once uh, a decade ago all the way through. I'm rereading it now. Um, so I'm not really in any position to meaningfully evaluate the validity, validity of his work against kind of the mainstream view. Uh, but every time I ask around uh, about Grossman to try to explain his, uh, his theory of breakdown to other Marxists, uh, I just get, get crickets because nobody's really heard of him. Um, he's an unknown entity, and this is why I think this book about his life, Socialism, uh, and, and Ted's book, Socialism and Instinction, um, are so important. Yeah, I, and I wanted to say too that um, you mentioned that th th we lack kind of this understanding of, of the breakdown of capitalism within um, broader kind of leftist circles and even Marxist circles. And this is why people find someone like me kind of a confusing character because I can sing the praises of capitalism, you know, because I know it can't go on forever. And in fact, the most terrifying thing is that this system can give a lot of wealth, it can produce a lot of wealth, but it destroys it. That's the worst thing. And so people are like shocked, you know, they're like, because um, they, they need to say, well, capitalism is really bad and it immiserates you and so on, and this actually works against us. So Ted, I wanted to know, what is it that drove you to getting into the work of Grossman um, to begin with? Okay, um, so thanks for joining me, everyone, and uh, look forward to answering any questions um, after our discussion. Um, yeah, so I was thinking about the, I was really, my starting point was the labor theory of value. And I was starting to sort of think about, I was reading a lot about technological advance, um, especially automation. And I was trying to, I was kind of like the conclusion or the, the sort of intuitive conclusion was, you know, a fully automated um, system of production cannot be capitalist because it would abolish um, the source of profit, which is capital's theft of of what the working class's labor time. Um, obviously, I'm not going to go into all the technical stuff about that, but if we can just start take that as a starting point. And so I was starting to think about, well, this system is is moving towards its final stages. Obviously, I'm not the only person saying that, but I wanted to try and prove it or try and explain it. And a comrade at, in an organization I was in at the time, this was about eight years ago now, said, you know, if you want to write something about a final crisis of capitalism, then you need to read Henry Grossman. So I read Grossman's um, Law of Accumulation and the Breakdown of the, uh, the Capitalist System, uh, the abridged version, which came out in 1992. This was the only... Um, this was the first time Grossman's book had been published in English. And the full version, the full English version didn't come out till last year. Um, Rick Kuhn um, uh, published that uh, and had it uh, translated. Um, so this is how little Grossman is known just in terms of his work being published in English. But when I read the abridged version, I found it very clarifying, a really strong reinforcement of Marx and I thought, you know, he's, he's really important for clarifying Marx, reinforcing his work, and for rehabilitating Marx. Because I think that the older capitalism gets, the more relevant Marx is going to become again. 
And so, you know, Grossman is um, in Grossman's book. Now that I've read the, the full version, he talks about how Marx is kind of forlorn about his work falling on deaf ears. And Grossman kind of concludes, well, that happened because the crisis of capitalism hadn't become deep enough for it to become relevant enough for enough people sort of thing. And, of course, Grossman ends up experiencing the same fate. Um, you know, his, he, he aims to challenge the, the reformists and, and the revisionists in the, uh, in the sort of the second international of the, of the socialist movement. And he's also up against, um, you know, the leading um, economists in the, in the Communist International who have a kind of, um, they have a kind of unclear and eclectic crisis theory. Um, they stand for socialism, but they've also got a reformist foreign policy because they're, you know, they're defending, they're trying to keep socialism to Russia and the Soviet Union. And so they have this kind of one foot in, one foot out sort of um, position. And so Grossman becomes important because he isn't recognised by the Soviet Union. Um, he or he becomes forgotten because he isn't recognised by the Soviet Union. His, his work isn't defended by the Soviet Union. And I think that because of that, and and because he was ignored by revisionists and reformists as well, um, he gets forgotten, neglected. You know, his work is rejected because it, it's too economic, it's too based on economics and not enough on class struggle, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think the time has come really to um, try and rehabilitate Grossman because I think it will help to help significantly to rehabilitate Marx himself. And I think also our, our movement, because I think we are a little bit too, not a little bit, way the hell, <laughs> too um, obsessed with, the kind of surface level phenomena of culture and so on. And there's a, a really distinct lack of understanding of some of the deeper processes at play. And if we, if we don't understand those processes, we can't fight against them. We can't be prepared when a humongous crisis comes. It's so, you know, regular people, when you think about like, what do they think of communism? They think of pink haired lunatics. You too, make me feel very underdyed. You who want power and impoverishment to make your life worse, right? And so there needs to be some kind of movement that's capable of taking up that kind of discontent. And that can only, uh, the, the discontent of, of like just everyday people. And you can only do that actually from a deep understanding of economics, because we have to understand it in order, in order to control it. And we're not there. We're not anywhere near that. So I think no. this this book is a real step in that direction. Um, Stephen, did you want to... Um, uh, did you want to ask some? You had a few questions you had prepared. Yeah, actually, speak, uh, speaking of what you just were kind of uh, talking about there, like the the deeper understanding of, of economics. Um, so reading reading Ted's book, his first book, really helped me clarify and uh, helped me understand Marxist economics much better than you know the first time I had read through Capital at age like in, in my twenties. I, I feel like it. It went over my head mostly, um, but but Ted uh, Ted's book and and using Grossman to kind of explain how the uh, how the labor theory of value and you know capitalist competition leads to this these problems. Um, 
and, and, and capital's own uh, abolition of its source of profit. So to that end, uh, Ted, could you maybe elaborate or explain why, you know, why overaccumulation is the kind of, uh, Grossman sees that as the kind of primary driver of, uh, of crises, how that relates to the uh, tendency of the rate, rate of profit to fall. And then from there, can you explain why this is a more, a clearer theory than the, you know, the common understandings of the underconsumption theory, which many Marxists uh, still hold to and an overproduction, uh, which I think most, most Marxists today will talk about um, yeah. as the, as the, the, the driver of, of crises. And even okay. it's a humongous, humongous question because you have to have it's the the following. This all depends on a theory called the falling rate of profit, which most people don't really understand. Yeah, I mean, just very briefly. So the main um, theories of crisis uh, crisis theory are underconsumption, which is just very put very simply that the working class isn't being paid enough to be able to afford to buy the commodities that capitalists sell. So reformism is the answer, increased wages, increased taxes, problem solved. The other one is the disproportionality theory, which um, basically argues that if capitalism and production and distribution isn't regulated properly by the state, that you will get uh, the, the a disbalance in supply and demand um, within and throughout, between and within branches of industry um, across the, the economy. Um, again, it's more complicated than that, but just very briefly. So Grossman is arguing against this. This is this is what he's taking on, and uh, essentially, this these two arguments are saying that capitalism can accumulate harmoniously, or capital can accumulate harmoniously and indefinitely so long as it's properly regulated by the state. Um, so it's arguing for social democracy. Um, he's, he's saying that's not the case. Capitalism has a tendency to break down of its own accord and goes into crisis uh, regularly. So, so Marx talks about um, the average recession striking sort of every 10 years. And um, so Grossman is arguing that in capital, Marx demonstrates this breakdown tendency. I want to remind you that GCAS is Sublation Media's one and only sponsor. They are an educational institution offering accredited degrees, and they are running seminars in critical theory, psychoanalysis, communication, philosophy, and literature. Upcoming seminars include Rocky Gangle on Spinoza's Ethics, Keith Faulkner's seminar on the genealogy of ideas, including lectures on Nietzsche, Foucault, and Deleuze, Emily Russon on George Bataille's Religion Without Religion, and many others. If you're interested in a radical education, follow the link to GCAS in the description. Supporting GCAS is a good way to support Sublation Media. So there, there was a Marxist, Austrian Marxist called Otto Bauer, who in 1913 produced one of these schemas. And it showed, he, but he only did it for four years. And after four years, it showed that the rate of profit did tend to fall, but that there was no collapse in production 
because um, it was satisfying the amount of additional capital needed um, alongside the amount of additional um, expenditure on wages, uh, so employment, and the amount of um, profit that would go to the consumption of the capitalists, which is the incentive for being a capitalist. So, so the scheme are basically... Um, creates a pure version of capitalism. So you've got constant capital, which is the value of, of the means of production. You've got variable capital, which is the value of the, of the outlay on wages. You've got a 100% constant rate of surplus value, which is the amount that's being, uh, the amount of labor time effectively that's being appropriated from labor and a couple of other things. So you've, you've only got, you're isolating the key features of the capital relation, such as the industrial capitalists, which are treated as one whole class. And then you've got um, the productive working class, i.e. the commodity producing working class. All other classes are discarded at this provisional stage. So Grossman follows this pattern on. You'll have to read the book and his book to, to grasp this properly. I'm just summarizing it very quickly and simply. But so Grossman goes beyond the four years that, that Bauer um, produced to see if actually his own schema um, was, um, was flawed or not. And after 36 years, he found that it breaks down. He, found, he finds that a surplus of capital arises, and this is what he calls an overaccumulation of capital, and it's not profitable to reinvest so there's no point in trying. The incentive to reinvest it disappears because it's not profitable to do so. And obviously, capitalist production is, is based on this profit motive. Alongside that, surplus of capital arises, a surplus of labour, um, a portion of the um, working population that becomes unemployable. And the, the um, consumption fund for the capitalists also disappears so from this, um, Grossman draws the conclusion that this produces the class struggle or intensifies it. Um, so he, he's, he's saying that there's a breakdown. He's effectively what he's describing a breakdown in the figures in this mathematical schema. And that's why he calls it a breakdown tendency. Now, he says, OK, Marx didn't talk specifically about a breakdown tendency, but he didn't actually specifically talk about a theory of value or theory of wages either. He just explained them um, in capital so and investigated them in, in capital. So what Grossman is trying to do is to reconstruct capital and explain it accurately for the first time after Marx. Um, the problem being with everyone else who had written about Marx is that they basically treated volume two of capital as Marx's empirical conclusions. So after this initial version of pure capitalism that Marx does it with his schemas, he then starts reintroducing the, the other aspects that were initially discarded to see if this counters the breakdown tendency. So Grossman does the same thing. So the main one is devaluation. So you get, you get this overaccumulation of capital, the the system goes into crisis, you get panic selling uh, because obviously people start tightening their belts 
The panic selling means that people uh, capitalists have to reduce their prices, but that then means that commodities, which includes means of production, can then be bought up cheaper than they could before, and so that gets the ball rolling again, and the um, you you can then start expanding production, innovating, merging companies more cheaply than you could before. Um, so Grossman's showing that what the other Marxists were doing, or the revisionist Marxists were doing, were were basing. They were only talking about value, the value composition of capital in, and the simplified version of it in um, Volume Two of Capital. Whereas Volume Three went on to dem- demonstrate the te- the more technical sides. That, that interacts with the value side and to demonstrate that despite these counter tendencies, the breakdown tendency will always eventually re-emerge. They can only postpone the breakdown tendency for so long. So this disproved the underconsumption theory and Grossman actually argues that underconsumption is part of the, um, the um, solution to any crisis because it pushes down uh, the average wage and wages eat into profit margin so therefore it's part of the solution and it also shows that the the um, the disproportions that arise are all, an almost permanent feature of capitalism because these crises makes the crisis of over accumulation which is also a crisis of overproduction or you could think of overproduction as the same thing or a symptom of overaccumulation. Okay, so, um, so, is, yeah. so one overaccumulation is the primary, and overproduction then is the secondary cause. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Rather, it's it's, it's effectively the same thing, but you've got to start with the overaccumulation of capital per se. You've got um, it's capital value that can't be rein, reinvested, so it it can't be um, um, it can't be reinvested because it can't produce a profit. So that value has to be reconverted into value that can be uh, reinvested. So it has to be destroyed or it has to be devalued. So the surplus value, the surplus capital becomes productive again so long as it is sufficiently devalued. But the overproduction of commodities is a secondary thing, but it's kind of the same thing as well. I forgot that I muted my mic, so I've been like asking questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so could you explain what that means like in real terms when you say that it has to be devalued what physically what does that mean Um, so just briefly you've got the reason you get an over accumulation of capital and this this over accumulation of the surplus you've got too too much surplus of capital value relative to the amount of surplus value or value that's being generated by the exploitation of the the working class. Because what happens is you get the crisis, you innovate and expand production, and therefore you get more, with every cycle, you get more capital relative to the amount of um, workers being employed. So therefore, as the system gets bigger, the workers collectively, in terms of their labour time, 
have to work harder to reproduce the system on an expanded scale. So when you get um, when you get an overaccumulation of capital and it has to be devalued, you have to cheapen it. You have to make it cheaper. Um, and there are obviously different ways of doing that. Um, innovation itself will cheapen commodities because the more abundantly we produce, the inversely prices tend to fall. Um, you don't really have to be a Marxist to understand that. That's a pretty general um, idea within economics. Um, so, yeah, you can devalue your capital through innovation. You can let it go disused, and therefore you're no longer um, spending any of your outlay on it. And it's it's cheaper to let it go disused and to start investing somewhere else. Because, and that's what we've seen a lot with outsourcing since the 80s, um, if you're trying to cheapen the, pay your workers less than they were before, then they're likely to resist. So it's easier to just shut down production, move it somewhere else and employ workers that were already on very low wages because those workers will be getting paid more than they were before. So it's all relative in, in that kind of way. And then you can just have wars and destroy. <laughs> Obviously, you can destroy capital that way um, um, and create new profitable opportunities because the old capital has been destroyed and this creates uh, breathing room for new accumulation. And that's something that Grossman was very keen on explaining because uh, no one else after Marx had really explained uh, war, on, war on a capitalist basis. Mm. If this is something that really, really interests me, because I know we need to move on, but I, I just totally selfishly, I want an answer to this. Um, uh, so it's, I have been saying for many years, anyone who's been following my stuff, I've been saying, I'm afraid that a war will come because of the enormous overaccumulation of capital, that the only way, it's not even enough anyway, it, but the only hope one might have is to just destroy, to just flatten continents as we did in the Second World War in order to um, reinstigate a realm of a, a, a realm, another round of accumulation. Um, and there's a bit in the Grundrisse where Marx says um, war is a bit like the capitalists dropping a third of production into the ocean or something like that. Mm. And then he says nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I want to know about this. And I actually suggested um, to you, Ted, that we should write a book about why capitalism needs war, because I think, mm. and then, you know, maybe it was self-fulfilling prophecy where as soon as, you know, I was primed to see any conflict coming, I said, yes, of course, conflict is coming. Um, but when Ukraine um, started up and people were saying, no, no, mutually assured destruction, it will it will remain a proxy conflict. I thought, you know, they might flirt with the possibility of world war again, because mutually assured destruction just might be really, really profitable. <laughs> so could you, sorry, you wanted to jump in. Uh, yeah, just the, yeah, the, the, the problem with nukes, um, is that that the destruction cause might make it so that you you can't be you know more productive later on right if you destroy yeah. everything you can't really rebuild in an area where where every where everything's been nuked and there's radiation so you, yeah. you kind of uh, eliminate the possibility of revalue yeah I don't I don't think I don't think they want to nuke um, other countries in particular I mean partly it's the problem is capitalists don't understand the system themselves. They 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 are responding to competition over profit as, as well. So the overaccumulation of capital 
also intensifies competition between capitalists and that can raise to the level of between nation states between because corporations are based in certain nation states and um so grossman gives the example of world war one um where he he quotes another book where it says that 35 percent of the world's wealth was destroyed in world war one and that basically that is like a way of accelerating the devaluation of capital because what you what you get anyway with capital is a lot of moral depreciation where the the obsolete um, commodities uh, become devalued and cheapened um, and therefore can either be liquidated and put back into production that way or they can be bought up on the cheap by the the richest capitalists um, so that keeps the that keeps the cycle going or gets it going again. So yeah, we've like I've I've argued that a world war wouldn't be able to save capitalism this time, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be very big wars before the possibility of stopping a world war arises. The reason I don't think a world war can save capitalism this time is, I mean, the point Stephen made about nuclear war mm-hmm. is obviously very. Um, you know, horrible to think about because how do, how does anything come back from that? Yeah. Um, well, the key thing to understand is that exactly as you said, they don't know what they're doing. Nobody starts like nobody starts World War Two because it's like, oh shit, we're in a, a crisis. How are we going to get out of it? Let's just blow everything up. No one's doing that, but the pressures yeah. are so great that it yeah. leads to these these enormous conflicts, and um, so the pressure becomes greater and greater. That very yeah. stupid things could happen. It's not like someone says, "Oh, we'll have to nuke the world and build it again." It's yeah. like, "Well, my oil is not is is not profitable, and I can't yeah. sell it to Europe profitably, and so on." And, and so the pressures become very very great. Um, if, so that's the I, thing that n- there's no plan. And that's yeah. scary. Well, if if I try and simplify it, there's so you've got the value of capital and the value of surplus value, and when you've got a crisis, the surplus value is down here somewhere. So to solve the crisis, you need to get the surplus value back up, but you also want to devalue the capital so that they do this again. So you're getting the balance, and then you're getting the surplus value back over and above the value of capital. And then accumulation is in healthy order again. So those are the two things um, that capitalists are trying to achieve. And innovation will um, lo- innovation will cheapen the cost of reproducing labour. You know, it will reduce the cost of living um, at least in relative terms. And therefore, you can appropriate more surplus value from the labourer that way. So that gets the surplus value up. You can expand the number of people employed as uh, in work as workers, either by proletarian proletarianizing parts of the middle class, or um, just employing un- people who are unemployed or weren't employed in productive um, uh, production um, before. And uh, yeah, but there there comes a point where the overaccumulation of capital is so great that the to sufficiently devalue capital um, in the time that they need because every, because the crisis is getting so deep, like war, the the pressure to go to war becomes really 
um, intense, but also that can express itself in, like Cecil Rhodes said, you know, to, to prevent a, a civil war here, we need to wage war abroad. And then, you know, you collect the tribute and distribute it at home, you know, to prevent the civil war. So that that kind of probably is, you know, the ruling class is how the ruling class tends to think about it. So we've talked about overaccumulation, uh, sorry, overaccumulation, um, overproduction, not being a realistic understanding of crisis. Um, but there are people who claim that the falling rate of profit, the fact that there's just um, profit that can't be invested um, sufficiently, mm-hmm. um, they claim that this is a fundamentally flawed theory of Marxism. So I, I'm not sure. Are we at the point now where we can say um, whether or not this is a flaw theory? Do you feel like we need to explain it a little bit more exactly why the falling rate of profit is the best understanding? Perhaps you could maybe just give a little um, uh, a little pitch for why we need the, fall, the falling rate of profit as it's just the best possible understanding besides what we've already said about uh, under, uh, overproduction. I think it's the best one in terms of being able to explain... Um why capitalism is unsustainable because there are a lot of studies now that show that um, the the historical rate of profit or the secular rate of profit, um, if you want to call it, is trending downwards. And so there's one by Esteban Maeto who estimated that the average global rate of profit in the 1870s was 43%, I think, like across that decade. Um, but in the 2000s, it had dropped to 17%. And of course, the rate of profit goes up and down, like, depending on various um, aspects of the system and it's the stage of its development. Um, but if you aggregate it out, the average is, it's clearly, which way is going to make more sense? Yeah, that, <laughs> it's clearly doing that on average. Um, but Grossman does... Um, point to the massive profit as well being the problem and trying to explain what the rate of profit actually is because we just think of it as the return relative to the amount that was invested so the 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 return relative to the capital advanced Um, but what is this actually expressing and that's something Grossman tries to get at and he's arguing that the massive profit um, even though it tends to rise absolutely because we're producing more, um, it falls relatively um, compared to the overall capital initially advanced or what you could also call the value of of capital or the value of the means of production, which need to keep expanding. Because if if, if you're not preserving the amount of capital, then, then you can't expand it and vice versa. If you're not expanding it, you can't preserve that value. Because the more we innovate, the less um, prices of production fall. And so also what's happening is the amount of profit contained within each average commodity is also falling as well. So the more abundantly we're producing, the less profit per commodity. But how do you offset that? Well, you have to produce even more because that increases the mass of profit. But then it just intensifies this problem with the, the the massive profit falling relative to the, the massive capital value, and so you get this decline in the rate of profit. Mm. Does okay, so Marxists and economists will will often say that 
you know, capitalism can just attack the working class, do austerity, do neoliberalism, and to restore its own profitability like it did in, you know, the 80s and 90s. We saw a big bump up. And then again, in the, in the, in, during the pandemic, um, we saw a huge consolidation and, and, uh, of, uh, of transfer of wealth. Transfer of wealth, yeah, and, and uh, you know, some restoring of profitability. Does it matter, as you know, I mentioned in my intro, does it matter if the profits generated are from, you know, fictitious capital, from swishing money around, from uh, government intervention, from rents, um, or, you know, the, the fact that less and less of it is, is coming from actual commodity production where, and surplus value, where, where, where value is created. Does, does it matter where they get their profits from? Yeah, it does. I mean, as a any capitalist can increase their profits by taking profits from elsewhere that were created elsewhere, they can boost their own bottom line by doing that, by centralizing capital um, and concentrating it into future. So, so the system needs to do that. So, so you get this underproduction of surplus value and, and an overaccumulation of capital. How do you offset that? Well, if the system's not producing enough surplus value, then you've got to take it, you've got to redistribute it, effectively redistribute it from below upwards. So that's one of the ways of overcoming the crisis, both to sustain the value of capital and the um, the capitalist's wealth, own personal wealth. So, but that won't solve the crisis um, at all. Um, it will just deepen the social crisis of capitalism by making a bigger part of the um, population poorer. And it, it does nothing to address the actual um, question of producing value. I mean, effectively, it's, effectively it's a way of, um, of increasing the rate of exploitation, but it's not doing it at the point of production. I'm was that, thinking, was that I'm no, sorry. Uh, my I'm uh, my husband's grandmother, great grandmother, is staying with us, and she's like a hundred years old, and she doesn't know how to speak English either. And she's just walked in and asked me what. Do you got any questions? Sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, so I'm I'm afraid that I I I may have missed that. So please, um, Stephen, can, go ahead. Can, yeah. So um, maybe maybe I'll use this opportunity then to kind of play devil's advocate for the underconsumptionists. Um, I was just talking to uh, our, our friend Sam, uh, the MMTer, um, because you know, you know, his point is that investment is a function of demand, and it's all about demand, 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 demand. Um, so you know, capitalists will invest if there is demand. Um, so you know, if capital is overaccumulated because it can't find profitable investments, does that not indicate um, a lack of demand for that product? And so, if you have a lack of demand for that product, doesn't that per, uh, imply an overproduction of commodities? Um, but if you, if um, you know the government is the you know currency monopolist and uh, and can purchase land, labor, and capital, so if there's a profitability crisis, can't the government just you know uh, invest in in companies, buy up land, buy up labor, uh, do what it needs to, you know, inject currency into the system, do what it needs to to restore profitability. Um, you know, obviously, uh, this this is would be kind of a uh, this isn't adding to surplus value directly, but it's kind of padding padding the areas where where there's where there's lack in the economy. Um, 
and so profit can can keep can keep going right if you create enough if you give enough money and and uh, uh, to to you know the poorest people in the working class then they can keep buying products right why can't why can't they just do that indefinitely I mean that theory needs to be proven you know kind of scientifically in in the way that Marx did with you know methodically and that it hasn't it hasn't been you you you're only kicking the can down the road you you might be able to um increase demand and therefore the number of commodities produced can expand and that definitely plays a role i'm not saying it doesn't but it doesn't um it can't it can only postpone the next the onset of the next crisis um but it could but it could also speed it up because if you're raising the wages above the value of labor power then you're actually eating into the massive profit that could otherwise be put towards the expansion of production so and and private production you know production that is privately owned so i mean that's that's the, the answer in a nutshell um I'm happy to, to to debate Sam again if he wants to. Yeah, he, he's, he's itching actually to to, to chat with you again. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of a lot of things that people will say. Oh well, but capitalists will just do X and capitalists will just do Y. It's interesting because a lot of these things are actually dealt with um, in as countervailing tendencies talked about in, in Grossman's work and in Capital Volume Three. Um, and they ultimately will not win out against this sort of irresistible tendency for the rate of profit to fall. Um, and one thing, too, um, that a lot of people have been talking about, obviously, now is this sort of PMC thesis, uh, the role of the professional middle classes. And what pe- a lot of people don't realize is that Grossman actually talks about the role of the middle classes. And and so does Marx when he talks about uh, talks about them in, in the um second volume of Capital, which Grossman draws on, um, as these sort of people that um, are essentially parasitic on capital in that they're funded out of surplus value. Um, and so they're all, they, they appear in kind of superficial um, uh, co- uh, antagonism with capital because they're always trying to big up their role and capital is always trying to reduce it and throw them down into the proletariat because they ultimately eat into um eat into surplus value. And I, I wondered if just, um, I know that we're kind of blowing through a lot of topics here, but I know a lot of people are interested in that. And I wonder if you, I, I really wanted to make sure that I asked you if you had anything to say about that whole, that whole discussion. Do you think that dynamic explains anything that we see today in politics? I mean, the, the tendency, this is where the technical side is as important as the economic or, or value side. The, the more, automated production gets the more deindustrialized the working class becomes and it gets pushed into services we know that around 80 percent of the economy is now in in the services uh, sector in britain and the us and elsewhere um so the the working class is really becoming to a certain extent a, a non-productive class and this is the this is the problem. This is why I think we're coming towards the end of capitalism as a as an economic system, as a mode of production. It's basically exhausting its own 
ability to reproduce itself. So the the um, the sort of consumer class. I mean, Grossman refers to them as a consumer class or a or a third third persons. And yeah, they're not producing surplus value because they're not part of the of production. They do important roles to service capital, but not to actually produce it. And so their consumption, their wages, is paid out of um, surplus value produced by commodity producing workers. During neoliberalism, over the last 40 years, the, the quickest uh, or the most expanding uh, uh, employ, employ, employment sector has been the commercial sector. Um, so a lot of workers have moved into uh, coming out of Keynesianism where you had a lot of state-owned production, even in Britain and America and uh, France and so on. Um, you've, a lot of those workers have moved into services and, and uh, the commercial sector. So that, you know, the middle class has actually swollen and you've... T- You've had this tenant, there's almost been, because on the one hand, we've had a lot of lumpenization where workers are thrown out of work almost permanently and, um, you know, are very, very poor. Um, And then on the other hand, there's been a large chunk that has been, that almost has a, and I kind of think of this as almost a pre-socialist tendency where a lot, there's a kind of post-proletarian states that a section of the working class has entered because production has become so abundant and the number of workers needed for production has fallen. So that that there's that two-way thing going on. But in recent years there's there's there looks like there's now an, an absolute decline in the number of workers being employed in the commercial sector. Because even those jobs can be automated away or the companies can't afford them. So companies like Nike are reducing the number of uh, people they're sponsoring, the number of sports people they're sponsoring. For example, that's just a, uh, like an easy example to use. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really complicated area that we haven't really uh, nailed down yet. But that's roughly my answer. <laughs> Do all English people call it Nike instead of Nike? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so weird. Well, it hasn't got a Y on the end of it, has it? Well, well, in, in, in Greek, well, the thing is, in Greek, it's Niki, right? So you, it's just, it's still wrong, though, because there's no I like in, in victory in Greek. Anyways, um, okay. So um, I also wanted to make sure that we got into... Um, some of the most important aspects, which is, is there, I mean, we've already talked about some of it, obviously long-term trends point to the fact that the rate of profit does appear to be falling. falling. And what, what convinced me was that I saw bourgeois economists being like, oh, there's this weird thing happening, <laughs> like, <laughs> just totally innocently. And of course, the falling rate of profit was um, completely taken for granted in um, classical economics. It was a puzzle that needed to be um, solved and answered. It wasn't something that Marx uniquely came up with and pointed to. It was something that he was also trying to explain. Um, and it's c- kind of been hand-waved away. Um, but what evidence, what other evidence is it 
uh, is there for this? Because there are some things that you point to in the book that I was really convinced by. But then when I went to try to explain it to like my husband, who's a total normie, <laughs> he was like, what do you mean interest rates are falling? The interest rate for our house just went up. So I wondered if you could kind of explain some of the, just just for, for smooth the smooth brained such as myself among us, um, what evidence is there for this? And how do you explain some of the things like interest rates appearing to go up again, that kind of thing? Uh, okay, so there's there's a lot of empirical evidence that I use in all of my work to try and back up Marx's argument that capitalism is unsustainable, works towards its own dissolution, and therefore necessitates a new mode of production called socialism. One of them being a study, recent, uh, fairly recent, very comprehensive study showing that the again the average interest rate has fallen towards zero. Um, over the past 700 years, which is about how how old capitalism is, if you include the early, like the early rudiments of uh, early capitalist production. Um, so this interest is a form of profit. It's um, obviously it's a, a, a rentier form, but it eats into the profit margins of the industrial capital. So the banking sector and um, the landlords need higher interest rates to for their own profits their own um you know consumption as well um that again grossman actually says that the interest rate tends to reflect the rate of profit more or less so um again this doubt this um downward average on the interest on the average interest rate again it goes up and down depending on how they react to a crisis. They'll, they'll, you know, so with inflation, they want to, so the way they get interest rates down is to print money, use that money to buy up uh, debt, whether it's government debt or corporate debt, and that pushes up the price of bonds, uh, which is debt, and lowers the interest rate. So, um when inflation gets out of hand, because there's so much surplus capital that they're trying to reconvert into production and the actual production can't keep up with that. That's what's actually happening now with inflation. They are trying to push interest rates up to lower demand and therefore get inflation down. Um, so the problem is... Yeah, they're going to have. To, they're going to have. I mean, what they seem to be doing is with uh, 2020, the stock market crash in um, March 2020 led to a very steep recession, but it only lasted for two months. A technical recession is six months or two quarters of a year, and so what they. So we still haven't actually had a, a recession in the US or Britain since 2008, 2009 which is crazy to think about, um, but they they managed to do so because what they need to do is cheapen production to try and get things going again, but they don't want a mega recession like we had in 2008 because they know it risks tipping over into something worse. So it, it seems to me like they're trying to do it bit by bit. So if you can get a two-month recession but a steep decline in prices, then you can get the system going again. But obviously what we're seeing is, you know, the crisis developing in a different way in terms of inflation. Um, but inflation can help 
capitalists because it, it can torch debt and wages to some extent. Uh, it can lower um, the the wages of the working class um, relative to their consumption, their consumption needs. Um, so, yeah, interest rates will play a, a part in all that and and how they respond to the crisis. But overall, interest rates are being forced down. It's a set, again, it's a secular trend. So there's some other there's some other empirical ones that I point to. So so debt to GDP is higher now than it was at the end of World War Two, mm-hmm. and we're in what um, Guy Summers, a financial expert, has called the everything bubble, where every asset class is in a debt bubble. That's never ha- that's never happened before. And the reason so, why they can't raise interest rates is that those bubbles will implode. That yeah, that's mean? right. They can't. Yeah. They can. They're trying to edge them up very gradually, mm-hmm. but inflation seems to be going up anyway, even when they do that. But the reason they don't want to put them too high is because it will make debt more expensive to repay, and then it, so then everyone will see that the government's going bust. Uh, put you know they're not going to get the returns on their bonds, which are negative a lot of the time anyway, or they have been in the in the last decade. That's been a, a unprecedented development. Um, so a few other things, the average GDP gross domestic product in the high income countries has tended to slow down decade on decade for the last 50 years and isn't much higher than 1% over the last couple of decades. Um, the US and UK currencies, um, the dollar and pound sterling have devalued by nearly a hundred percent in the last hundred years. And most of that has been since 1970 um, and, and so it's devalued at an accelerated rate the more productive we've become the more that that's happened um, costs of production are falling to seem to be falling towards zero when you look at things like 3d printing um, how much it costs to store because 3d printing of course rem- removes such a large chunk of the outlay on wages where it can be used, that the price of production just is, has fallen rapidly where it's been. So the more that generalizes, the more like the crisis could deepen once you get over that initial uh, bump um, or advantage from not paying the wages. Um, and Marx actually says that because people say to me, well, they can just expand production on the, the old basis of um, of um, of the method of production, but but that's true, and that will sustain the rate of profit at the level it is. But Marx actually points out that the expansion of production actually tends more towards the newest uh, technology because it raises it raises the productivity of labour, and therefore meets the demands of accumulation. Um, there's two pretty big ones, other pretty big ones as well. The energy return on investment has fallen in a secular trend from 100 to 1. So every one unit would get your 100 units back. That was in 1930 during the Great Depression. That's continued to decline down towards zero and is pretty close to zero now um, in the last studies that have been done on that. So that, 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 was, that figure I gave was on fossil fuel. But according to Sid Smith, who did a lecture on this that you can watch on YouTube called How to Enjoy the End of the World. Um, 
it's it applies to all of the all forms of energy production including renewables and then there's one more which is that between in 1964 the average um us company uh out of the top 500 would its lifespan would be 60 years but in 2014 it was down to 18 years so any of any any us corporation that pops up uh, in the top 500 now is not going to last very long so again that's another indication that this system is approaching it's it's in game you're off again <laughs> damn it's cuz my my dog is having nightmares next to me no i was going to say <laughs> oh cr- crap we're screwed basically cuz we've just started a new company um <laughs> media. Um, but th- you make a really terrifying and engaging case for the end or like something approaching the end um, mm-hmm. at the moment. But I wondered, um, what do you say to people that think, well, you're taking a big risk here? Because as the old joke is, cap- um, Marxists have predicted 10 out of the last five recessions. Um, do you not risk this kind of pseudoscientific claim that, you know, you're saying the end is nigh, the end is nigh, and what doesn't happen, you revise, you know. Um, how do you kind of get around that critique? Do you not feel like you're make, you're taking a big risk there? You, you don't even hedge your bets. Like in the book, you're like, <laughs> I mean, you do say this could be, but I make a really strong case that the end is nigh. I mean, how do you respond to people who think that's pseudoscientific and far-fetched? I mean... Uh, I, you know, we talk about theory and practice a lot and I'm trying to combine the two, like in practice, what is happening? I've just given you the empirical uh, data and evidence that seems to be very compelling. Um, You know, so that for me backs up, you know, Marx's argument that the rate of profit not only tends to fall, but tends to fall progressively. He does say that, um, you know, people, some people, even Marxists just say, oh, well, it tends to fall, but it can also tend to go back up. But yeah. the secular trend is that it go that it does go down. You, you know, all, all I can do is point to the empirical evidence and then say, this is what Marx said. And, you know, it's it, when you look at the two and how they interact, there's a very, very strong case for his ideas being borne out in this empirical evidence, um, you, you know, money being devalued, prices of production falling towards zero, this debt debt bubble that is consuming everything, um, the energy return on investment. I don't really know how you can look at all that and go, well, there must be something we can do to reverse all this. Yeah. There isn't because you can't stop evolution effectively like evolution is you know in, in encompasses everything including technology and marx's argument is not just economic it's also technical it's a certain technical level of production demands a certain type of mode of production that is what he's saying and he is convinced that a fully automated mode of production has to be communist. Um, just as he thought manufacture and um, the development of modern industry in terms of uh, mechanical mechanisms, 
had to be capitalist. He says that in volume one. So like the solution to, if you don't want this to happen would be to go back toward to old, old methods of production, but they would just evolve again because, <laughs> because that's what happens. Like I, I think, I don't think like I'm not an economic determinist. I'm a, I'm a, economic and technical determinist if you like i think the two things interact i think that's what marx is trying to explain you know the you get a crisis uh, of value production the technical side sorts it out you you raise the technical level and that enables our ability to to restore the value side but the technical side gets so productive eventually that the value it the value side is essentially withering away you can see that in the, the devaluation of money, the, the falling rate of profit, the uh, falling prices of production. It's, it's, it's all there. Um, so, yeah, th this is historical as well as economic, as well as technical. It's all of those things. Um, I, speaking of determinism, though, I, I wonder if, like, we could or you could clarify then how you think Grossman's theory uh, helps us transition into socialism because uh, you know from some of your tweets and some of the ways you write about it, it seems a little over deterministic that you know we're in pre-socialist times and all these trends are kind of creating socialism on their own. Um, so it can sound like you know socialism yeah. be, kind of will will emerge naturally out of this um, this this breakdown. Um, whereas of course most most Marxists would say, well, no, you you need you need class struggle and you need, you know, uh, Trotskyists like myself would say, well, you actually need, need very good leadership uh, yeah. above, above all in order to make this happen. Yeah, so I, I mean, I agree with the, the importance of class struggle. What I'm saying is that capitalism itself um, and our own sort of in, like inevitable technical evolution is producing the basis for socialism. So all the, the elements are in, in place in terms of our ability to produce abundant material wealth for all. That now exists. We can do it very cheaply. We can distribute what we make very cheaply and all the rest of it. And um, I, so what I'm, what I'm saying and what Grossman is saying that this development produces a class struggle because the as the technical side sort of abolishes the, the value side, the capitalists are obviously going to try and redistribute what value is left upwards. And so they're going to start attacking the work. It's already, it's already been happening for, for decades, right? But it's intensifying. The, 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 work, the ruling class or the capitalist class attacks the, both its competition for one, but also which causes a centralization of capital into fewer hands, proletarianizes a bigger section of the masses, and at the same time they're attacking the working class. So this class struggle is going on all the time, but capital, the capitalist class, is instigating it. And what Grossman is saying is that as that uh, relationship develops, a larger and larger portion of the uh, working class and the mass of people in general will have to stand up for themselves to stop it so it's a it's a class theory it's a class struggle theory but it's explained by the breakdown tendency yeah um it's not saying 
um, oh, the capitalists are going to just, um, you know, nationalise all the production at a certain point because they can't do anything else. I do think, you know, Marx does say a, a, like a portion of the ruling class will will switch sides. You know, we'll we'll see if that happens, but <laughs> because they're going to go bust, the social socially the system's going to become chaotic and all the rest of it. So it's not an immiseration. I know you wanted to ask about uh, the immiseration thesis. Like, do we have a, re a revolution because we're all immiserated? Yes. I, I don't think it's that per se. I think immiseration plays a role, but it's more about people have being forced to stand up to protect their own um, means of subsistence more and more as this... Um, as all these tendencies progress. And also it's, it's also relative immiseration too. As you become more and more aware of a world of wealth, you just right at your fingertips and you're like, well, this stuff was like really cheap five minutes ago. <laughs> you yeah, become exactly. more aware of what's being kept from you and people aren't happy about that. And, you know, Marx talks about the crumbs that fall to the working class and get bigger, um, but they're still crumbs relative, everything relative to what the, capitalist class has is is much much smaller and you're the one who creates that wealth so it's about trying to make sure that people are aware of that and fight back against it and supposedly it will become people will become aware of that possibility just it will become obvious that's the idea but i want to get to the questions uh we've been talking for over an hour now and i want to make sure that we could uh, address some of the questions in the chat but i wanted to ask one more question which is <laughs> um it struck me recently that a lot of the things that Marx and Engels talk about um, as being an inevitability of the transition from capitalism to socialism and communism seem to be happening in this nightmare scenario. Um, so like a lot of things sort of wither away, um, but without anything to replace them. And I wonder, could we have a situation in which the authoritarianism is so strong and the you know the control of populations are so strong, and the the class struggle is so um, unbalanced that you could have a breakdown, and we kind of, this all of these these things they wither away into something more horrible. <laughs> is that a possibility? Have you ever right, considered that? Because because oh. the, the character of the working class is different than it was a hundred years ago. We don't have yeah. lots of factories and shop floors that bring workers together in direct, you know, um, you know. Uh, Con, uh, conflict with the with the bosses. If anything, we're even more atomized. Yeah, the division of the division of labor intensifies as, as capitalism progresses, um, and that's acu acutely apparent now. Um, but so, I mean, I look. Fascism is we're already you know in a very authoritarian stage of neoliberalism. You might even call it, you know. Um, pre-fascism or I don't know what you want to call it, but the, the, we've seen an obvious concentration of, of wealth and therefore power, which has been reflected in the policymaking and legislation at the state level. And obviously that can continue be, and like the, because they need to keep concentrating wealth into fewer hands. That's the, that's what the system is, is, um, like provoking the ruling class to do sort of thing. So, so fascism is definitely a possibility, a, you know, a, a horrible 
version a horrible as horrible a version of as we've seen it's possible like but i don't know that i can't predict it Mm. um and you would expect that any rule uh, any sort of working class attempt to build dual power for example would would be met with massive resistance from the ruling class and that would produce so like if there's a civil war that's 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 a nightmare scenario on its own so I don't know what is possible in terms of how bad things get, but it will still be capitalism before it's socialism. It will still be capitalism. It will just be people who have, very, you know, a working class that is very highly unemployed and very poorly paid, whether that's on a universal basic income or something else. Um, it will still be capitalism. It will still be a late stage of capitalism, but something will instigate you know, a, a struggle for socialism, it, it, it will become, I'm absolutely positive that it will become necessary mm. um, because the, you know, people who work for the state are workers as well, a lot of them. And we've seen a lot of people working for the state being made redundant in the last decade or so. So that is a trend that isn't sustainable. You know, you need a capitalist state needs to be able to pay its state workers. Um, so I foresee a political, potentially a political crisis where the tax base uh, collapses, and the capitalist state will might if it can't restructure its debt, it might face a situation where it, it can't employ its state workers, which includes soldiers and police and so on and so forth and that might produce a situation where you where the socialist movement starts to grow very rapidly that's speculation but it's it's a potential sort of opening that we should be aware of um you know i'd much rather a you know a political uh, as as peaceful revolution as possible out of a political crisis rather than one where we only get to it when everything's been destroyed, like obviously. So that I mean, that's another reason to to get people mobilised now. Well, on that optimistic note, um, the, uh, Stephen, if you wanted to, to, if there were any questions that you wanted to pull out of the um, the comments, but I just I'm just going to pull up a couple. Um, so someone has asked, um, "Are you saying that nobody except workers?" in production are involved in the study of surplus value production. What do you define as production? Um, and uh, it seems like an incorrect understanding of an important parameter. So you're saying that only like people who produce physical commodities, I'm not sure, I may be misrepresenting the question, but are, are these the only people that are, are, are involved in surplus value production? And I'll just keep the question up so you can see it. Yeah, the only people involved in uh, surplus value production are w workers who produce commodities for capitalists who are then um, who then sell their commodities and make profit. So the profit, the surplus value contained in the commodities is realised in the in sale of the commodities, but the surplus value originates in at the point of production, as in the the appropriation of surplus labor time so when we're talking about surplus value we mean surplus labor time so the worker works 
their necessary labor time and um, that covers their costs of their of, of their living um, of their subsistence and then the rest of the day they're working for the capitalists that surplus labor time is surplus value that is only realized in commodity sales so if your work is does not involve commodity production surplus value can't be realized right so it's only the the commodity producing working class that um that produces surplus value i will just add that people who work in services can produce surplus value if they are handling finished or near finished um um commodities and i would add that and this is something mark stresses a lot more than grossman that's that science has become the helmsman of production. You know, scientists are involved in commodity production a lot more than they used to be. So the 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 I, I would say the average worker produces less surplus value um, than they used to because they're not involved in manufacture or like in relative terms because they're not involved in like the more labour intensive manufacturing. That, that used to be the uh, dominate the technical side, but the mass of surplus value is higher because we're producing so much more, so much more quickly. Mm-hmm. And that probably means that more of the population is involved in surplus value production, but it's just relatively less per worker. Yeah. I mean, even like um, journalism is becoming automated now, like the listicles that you see, and they're like weirdly written because they're written by mm-hmm. robots. Um, So like a lot of services are being automated. I'm just conscious that we're running a little bit out of time, uh, short on time. So um, someone has asked out of Grossman's book, what one thing in particular stood out to you that impressed you the most or blew your mind? And for me, it was the, um, I have to jump in and say it was the the PMC thing, because that was a big question for me. And then to see it in the countervailing tendencies, like really pushing hard on that class, I found that very interesting. Um, Cool, that's a good question thing that blew my mind um the oh there is actually in his letter to formatic which i cover in one of the chapters i find really interesting because he this is where he gets more political uh, and he talks about um during the german revolution the sort of ultra some of the ultra left tendencies that came up that kind of or Sort of foot shooting tendencies that came up in the in some of the com, some of what the communists did, um, and he talks because he talked because a lot of the communist party or some of the, the the leadership that emerged in the communist party in Germany talked a lot about b- betrayal, um, you know, of the reformists and the revis- revisionists, and and Grossman says, well, yes, that's true, but it's also to do with the immaturity of the workers' movement. And also the the potential of the crisis didn't just didn't get deep enough to incentivize enough people to you know convert to the revolution sort of thing. So I thought that kind of like personified his um, economic theory in a, in a way. Stephen, did you want to jump in and add anything? Yeah, I just uh, just had to you know disagree with with that uh, that uh, assessment of the, what the problem was in in the, the German Revolution. I mean, we obviously argue that it, it was 
all, all down to leadership and that the working class itself was in fact um, you know radical enough and, and would have taken power had they had the right leadership um, and that the, the, the economic conditions weren't like the German working class at the time was among the most comfortable I think and um, but but still was in a position to uh, to take power but uh, it's kind of getting off topic I, I agree that the leadership was a problem but the the fact is that there was betrayal there was certain sections that betrayed or didn't convert to the side of the revolution effectively and if they had then it would have made the leadership's um problems a bit more you know would have created confidence within any leadership that was there instead instead of the situation where they ended up effectively sort of bottling an uprising so another question is, uh, a few people have said, you're a determinist, no matter what you call it, you're still a determinist. <laughs> what do we do? Sit back and wait for technology to do the job. Capitalism, right, capitalism has been right for overthrowing for 200 plus years. Technology of recent decades has not fundamentally changed this. Well, I don't agree that capitalism has been right for 200 years because then you're creating an, another type of determinism, which is, Capitalism will end when the working class puts an end to it, but but when when is it going to put an end to it? Um, you know, just because it gets bored or something. I mean, it's it's that's a determinist argument in itself. It's not. Whereas I'm trying to be dialectical. I'm trying to trying to talk about the relationship between the economic and technical sides on one on the one hand and the class struggle that this produces on the other. So I would say again that the, the the I mean the economic technical side has carried on developing. The production is far more automated now than it was 20 years ago. I think that's visibly evident to most people. I was talking to someone last week who works in an Amazon factory. He said it's 85% automated um, in there. You know, so um, yeah, I, if you know, I I welcome people. Um, like making that sort of challenge because it gives me the opportunity to to try and and counter it and try and clear up what I'm trying to explain, but I'm afraid capitalism hasn't been right for for 200 years. There's, there have been very few attempts to overthrow capitalism and even fewer successful revolutions. So I think that's very optimistic to say that it's been right for 200 years. That that would suggest to me that it can go on forever in which case there would be no point in being a Marxist or revolutionary. There was a, a question early on, and um, I can't find it scrolling now, but um, it was about um, 3D printers and automation and that sort of thing. It was a question that came up also when I very first interviewed you in the comments on YouTube, which was, well, we can't automate everything. Automation is never going to touch certain aspects of, of human labor. So how can you say that um, how can you sort of big up the role of automation as being the basis of a communist system and so on? People are always going to have to do work and always going to have to do work that maybe isn't nice work. So how do you make sense of that? Do you think you're being maybe too optimistic about the role of aut automation in society or pessimistic? We, we don't know that everything can't be automated. We literally don't know that. You know, another thousand years of innovation, what's that going to look like? So you can't say you, you know that that's for sure that everything can't be automated. Obviously, not everything can be automated in the immediate future. And the capitalist system has the problem of this barrier to productivity growth, which is this surplus of capital that can't be reinvested profitably. So they do have the problem of not being able to, to generalize um, 
automation in the way they would. Although if you get the if you solve the crisis, prices fall again, and the um, they can then accelerate the development of automation again. Um, it's very clear in my work that the automation revolution can't be completed by capitalism. The system has to break down before that technological evolutionary development is completed. It's socialism has to finish what capitalism started effectively. Mm. Also, oh, go ahead. I think it's also like kind of the point is that, uh, yeah, sure, most jobs or a lot of jobs can't or maybe won't uh, be automated, but uh, at the level of commodity production where surplus value is generated, m mostly they can. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what matters. Also, Marx talks about, uh, I can't remember, it's all melded together in my head, I think Capital Volume 2, um, about the realm of necessity, where he says the realm of necessity will always dominate human beings. We will always have a certain amount of labor that we will always just have to do. But the point is that that could be a very, very small part <laughs> of our day, whereas now it, it occupies such a huge part of our day for, for not really any reason. In a, in a very small period of time, we can generate a very large amount of wealth. Um, and um, do the things that we need to do. And then we can spend the rest of that time doing work that we actually want to do and um, feel a calling for and all that stuff, you know, fish and talk philosophy and all that stuff in the German ideology. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask the, just ask if there's any final questions from those who are watching. We still got 10 people here, but just to kind of, I think that was it. Some Someone wrote a very angry, ridiculous response. Wage labor political subjectivity is determinist. I'm afraid I don't think we've got enough time <laughs> to to really respond to that. So what I wanted to do was, Ted, give you a, a chance, if you could just sort of round out our discussion. Um, we've touched on a huge range of topics that you deal with in the book. Um, could you give us just one reason why people need to go out and get it and read it? Besides the fact that it's just really good to like beef up your theory powers. Yeah, I mean, I... I think, you know, Grossman and Marx talked, uh, Grossman talked about Marx being like kind of um, disheartened by his theory not really having the impact and influence he thought it deserved to and it did deserve to because it was it's always relevant just to explain any crisis of capitalism or the, the bulk of them, the, te the tendency towards crisis that we experience so often. Grossman had the same fate. What I'm saying now is that both of them are becoming increasingly relevant as capitalism uh, gets older and that in in some senses they're becoming relevant for the first time and maybe if they were ignored in the past it was because the their theories didn't didn't reach the level of their ultimate manifestation but i think in our time they will and perhaps then they it will become impossible to ignore them and I mean, this this book is just an introduction to, to Grossman because I think, you know, he's not well known enough. And I think his his uh, work should be more widely um, cited in our defense of Marx amongst Marxists. Um, um, and I think it helps us to rehabilitate Marx. So for all those reasons, I mean, I want to do something more substantial to defend him. Um, later on um if i get a chance but for now i think this is a really good introduction um to, to help you know put 
to put everyone on a good footing, a, a solid sort of um, basic understanding of the capitalist system and why it can't survive much longer. Okay, um, an optimistic or pessimistic note to end on. <laughs> um, we will be posting this on YouTube. So um, for those of you who joined late and maybe wanted to hear the first part of the discussion, you can tune in there. We can also continue the discussion um, by liking it and <laughs> commenting down below. And I know I always sort of trawl through the comments myself. So if you have any additional questions, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to pass them on to Ted. But I want to thank everyone for, for coming, everyone watching. I think we hovered between, you know, a few dozen <laughs> viewers throughout. Um, and, and thank you very much um, to, to Stephen and, of course, to Ted for, for um, joining us and for writing this book. So thank you. Thanks to both of you and everyone who joined in. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Hello. I want to let you know that Sublation Media's official launch date will be Sunday, June 26, 2022. We'll be holding an event for this launch at Project Parlor in Brooklyn, New York. We'll run from 3 p.m. to 10 p.m. And Norman Finkelstein, Margaret Kimberly, Pascal Robert, Chris Catrone, Ben Burgess, Jason Miles, Alfie Bound, and a number, a number of other interesting leftist types, including myself, will be there to talk about the left in a time of state and self-censorship. It's a free event, everyone is invited, and if you live in New York City, I hope to see you there.